The invention of the, the sea vessel was a really important technological advance in, in ancient times. Like never before, goods could be spread around the world. People could travel to places they had only heard about. Wars would be decided on the sea from then on. But these early sea vessels had a, had a big problem. Sometimes you needed a ship to stay put at sea. So the first seafarers, what they did was they would they'd gather large bags and fill them with sand and rocks, and they'd throw them over the side of the, uh, of the, side of the ship, of course, tying them to the ship. And that would help a little bit, you know, resist the current or resist the wave. But it wasn't a really effective means of doing so. If a storm blew in, these bags of sand had no chance of keeping, uh, keeping the ship on track. And the crew would have no idea where they would end up, and they'd often get lost at sea. But then the ancient Greeks came along, and they had this brilliant idea. What you needed is you need something heavy to throw overboard, but that thing needs to be attached to the, of course, to the ship, and it needs to be able to go all the way to the, the bottom of the, the seafloor. And, and not only that, more importantly, that thing needs to have some kind of teeth. Oh, let's see, we're on, we're on the wrong slide here. That thing needs to have some kind of teeth that can hook on to the rocks at the bottom of the seafloor. Well, as you know, this device became known as the anchor. And the anchor was a massively important piece of technology as well because it allowed a ship for the first time to hold its position even in the midst of a terrible storm. In 1 Samuel 21, David finds himself in physical and emotional desperation mode. He is spiritually out to sea and he desperately needs an anchor to stabilize himself. So, because, because everything in his life that he's experiencing is out of sync with everything he's been told, but everything he's been promised about his life. He needs an anchor with, with teeth in order to grab hold of some firm foundation so that he won't be swept away by his own fears. So in 1 Samuel 21, we encounter a desperate man in a desperate situation. And we're going to retell this story of this desperate man in the desperate situation that you just read about. But first, we need to set the stage a bit. David's life thus far has been uh, a big roller coaster, up and down. It, it begins with his unprecedented rise into this incredible, heroic war figure, all the way from a, just a simple shepherd boy. But in chapter 19, everything changes in his life. He's now an outcast running for his life. And as Ian said last week, at the close of chapter 20, just before the, the narrative we just read, David is waiting at his stone of destiny. Will he be thrust into exile on the run for his life, or will he be invited into the kingdom? As we heard last week, the arrow goes long, and that means David is going to be on the run in enemy territory for the next seven and a half years. After an emotional goodbye with his close friend Jonathan, David sets off to find refuge in enemy territory. But first, he makes a pit stop in the town of Nob. 
In this narrative, you get the sense that everything is happening at a really fast pace for David. David doesn't have time to gather his men or any food or any weapons. So he just goes and he runs straight south on his way to Philistia. But, but he needs to st- stop at this town called Nob because he needs some food and weapons. Now at the time, Nob is a, a religious center. It, it's where the, the tabernacle was. It's where the, all the priests do their kind of religious activity. And naturally, when, when, he, when David arrives at Nob, he, he encounters the chief priest, Ahimelech. Now Ahimelech is, is, is Saul's chief captain. And Ahimelech immediately sniffs out, something is not right here. Here is David, um, Saul's commanding officer, and he has no food, he has no men, and he has no weapons. Something's not right. But David, you know, working quick on his feet, comes up with a story. And we, we see what he said, David says to Ahimelech in verse 2. The king sent me on a mission, and he said to me, no one is to know anything about this mission that I'm sending you on. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever you can find. So David tells the chief priest that he's on a secret, he doesn't tell the the, the chief priest that he's running from Saul, he tells him he's on a secret mission for Saul. And so the priest, Ahimelech, he doesn't have any, uh, any ordinary food to give, to give David. All he has on hand is this, is this holy bread. Now, you've got to understand about this holy bread here is that it, it's, um, it actually, what it's happening is it, it actually points back to the, the, the miraculous bread that God gave Israel in the wilderness. Well, what they do need to do as a symbol is set this bread out in the holy place before the Lord every Sabbath. And when the Sabbath is over, they can take the bread and the priest can eat it, only the priest. But David is in dire need of food. And so Ahimelech makes an exception and gives him this holy bread. And it's right at this point where an ominous figure enters the story. Verse 7 says, Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained from the Lord. He was Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. Last time I preached, I I said, it seems that Saul has eyes and ears everywhere. Now, Doeg doesn't show up again until the next chapter. But the fact that he's identified as Saul's chief shepherd, and even more, an Edomite. Now, an Edomite, right, is is Israel's greatest enemy. What is an Edomite, Israel's greatest enemy, doing in Saul's court? Clues us into the fact that this guy's up to no good. Well, David's not going to stick around for, for Doeg to rat him out. He's off to Philistia. But first, he has one more request. He needs a weapon. And as it turns out, the only weapon they have on hand in this religious center of Nob is the sword of Goliath, the incredible Philistine warrior whom David had killed. So David with the sword of Goliath in hand, makes his way into the city of Philistia, this enemy territory. And at this point, if you're reading carefully, you may recognize how desperate David has to be. He's fleeing for his life, and he seeks refuge in Gath, the hometown of of none other than Goliath. 
I mean, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't normally seek refuge in a place where I was single-handedly responsible for killing their greatest war hero. This is Churchill seeking refuge in Berlin, okay? It just wouldn't seem to happen. But here David goes into Gath, hometown of Goliath, armed with Goliath's sword. We can kind of feel the tension brewing. And, and it's hard to know what David's thinking here, but I, I think he must be thinking either they won't recognize who I am, or if they do, they'll, they'll appreciate the defection of the greatest officer, the, the, the highest ranking officer of their greatest enemy. And when David finally arrives, he's brought to Achish, the king of Gath. And just when he comes into, in, into this king, you can see the advisors of, of Achish coming towards and saying, wait, 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 uh, uh, excuse me, king, this is the legendary war hero of Israel. You know, this is the guy about whom they sing, David has slain his tens of thousands. A and may I remind you, dear king, those ten thousands are Philistines. David sees the writing on the walls. Or... This isn't going to end well for him. So I think desperate times call for desperate measures. And he decides to do a bit of acting. He acts as if, as if he's a madman, you know, writing graffiti on the walls and letting the, the, the spittle dri dribble down his, his long beard. I was going to do an illustration, of, a physical illustration for you, but I cut my beard off this week. So I decided you're going to, have to, you're going to have to imagine it on your own today. And his, his act remarkably proves convincing, at least to Achish. And Achish gets a bit cross with his servants at the end and says, Am I short of madmen here in Philistia? Get rid of this guy. So 1 Samuel 21 ends, and David escapes the clutches of death once again. Now, what should we learn from this episode? You may be wondering, is David acting wisely and righteously in these episodes, or, or is he acting foolishly? Well, it's, it's hard to say, right, because the narrator never tells us. I, I tend to think that David's deception of the priest, you know, he, he tells the, the priest a false story. I, I think that he's actually acting as the protector of Himelech there. David is protecting the priest from Saul by giving him le legitimate deniability, you know. Now Ahimelech can go to him and say, I, I had no idea that David was running from you, Saul. Of, of course, Saul in the next chapter doesn't care. He receives word from that ominous figure, Doag, and then he kills Ahimelech and his entire family in merciless fashion. David, the protector, Saul, the killer. As far as the second scene goes, where David acts like this madman, I just think we see a man with no options. He's acting in complete desperation. You just get the sense that his life is coming at him too fast, and, and, and he's just flying by the seat of his, his pants or, or trousers. I actually asked an English guy this week, can I say flying by the seat of his pants? He said, yeah, that works. So there you go, pants, trousers, whichever one you want. He's acting quickly. The focus of these episodes, I think, is on the contrast between David's total desperation and God sustaining him in the midst of that desperation. 
I think that the text, it doesn't give us a clear moral evaluation of, of David's actions because the, the chapter, I don't think, is, is so much about learning from David as much as it is learning about David's God. In these stories about David, there, there are all kinds of parallels between David's life and the story of Israel. I don't want to get into the minute details, but I want you to broadly see how God is sustaining David just like he sustained Israel. Both Israel in the book of Exodus and David are on the run for their life, being pursued by evil kings, Pharaoh in the one sense and, and Saul as the next. It's, it's, it's a bit scary because you can see Saul as becoming the new Pharaoh, isn't he? In the case of both Israel and David, God provides heavenly bread to sustain them and really to save them in the midst of their desperation. And, and it's no stretch to call this holy bread from the tabernacle heavenly bread because that's precisely what the tabernacle is, an architectural representation of heaven. God is the featured character in this narrative. David is afraid. He's alone. He, his back is to the wall. He has no options. We're not, we're not sure if he's acting foolishly or wisely, but we know that God is there, quietly, ordinarily sustaining him and providing for him. Like I said in chapter 19, God's deliverance of David does not mean the end of his trials. God's deliverance of David means that he is still standing in the trial. Christian, God, the God who sustained David is the one who will sustain you in your moments of desperation as well. Can we learn something from David here, though, as well? I think we can. I think we can precisely because in Psalm 56 we have the unique privilege of hearing David's response in the midst of this very desperation. If you would, turn to Psalm 56. It's on page 576 in that Red Pew Bible. Psalm 56 on page 576 in the Red Pew Bible. Here we see the response of a desperate man. Psalm 56. It's a psalm of lament. Read the inscription at the top with me. For the director of music, to the tune of A Dove on Distant Oaks, of David, a mictum. When the Philistines had seized him in Gath. One of the questions that we're asking in this series is how David's life experiences shaped him into the man after God's own heart. I mean, this kind of desperation will often break people. This, these are the kinds of circumstances that often bring hardness in people's hearts. This is the kind of circumstances, the desperation, that brings coldness and anger. This is the kind of desperation that also, often makes us indifferent to God and to others. So what is the posture of David's heart that allows him to grow in faith and intimacy with God through the desperation and through his fears? That's the question, 
I think Psalm, Psalm 56 answers. And I think that's the question that I think it's answered most profoundly in verse 3. Let's start in verses 1 and 2, though, first. Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. Here's the answer. When I am afraid, I put my trust in God. Two different times in 1 Samuel 21, the narrator notes David is deeply afraid. David doesn't say here, when all is peaceful, when all is well, that's when I put my trust in God. Friends, if faith doesn't inform, if trust doesn't inform our moments where we don't understand what God is doing, when we're fearful, then what is faith for? (laughs) Trust in God is designed precisely for the moments where we don't understand what God is doing or where our fears are coming from. David has a settled confidence in God. It anchors him when the, the, the storms of this world, when, the winds, uh, when his world is blowing him in ten different directions. But that, that sounds so easy when I say, just trust in God. It just it sounds very easy, and we know it's not easy. How can David trust God? That's what I was asking in this text. Okay, trust God, that sounds easy, but how? How does David do it? I think there are four truths in Psalm 56 that David sinks the teeth of his anchor into so that he continues trusting in God in the midst of his chaos. First, David trusts in God. Oh, sorry. David trusts God because God has given his word to David. Verse 3. When I am afraid... I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. Verse 10. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise. David can trust God because God has revealed himself as a trustworthy God in his word. Remember, David is a future king of Israel. Do you know what future kings of Israel were were, were tasked with doing? They had to handwrite, they had to copy out by hand an entire copy of the law, Genesis to Deuteronomy. That takes a long time, friends, I think. David knew the word. Trust begins with a love for God's word. Consider how David describes God's word, for instance, in Psalm 19. Think of a, do you think of God's word like this? This is how he describes it. It's perfect. It refreshes the soul. It's trustworthy. It makes the foolish wise. It's right. It gives joy to the heart. It's radiant, firm, righteous, more precious than gold. You know, we don't, we don't worship this book, do we? But if you don't love God's word, if you don't sink your teeth deeply into God's word, 
you'll find it very difficult. You'll find it impossible to trust God when your life falls apart. Secondly, God knows and God cares. David trusts because he knows that God knows and God cares. Read verse 8. Record my misery, God. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? David's asking a rhetorical question. He knows that God is a record-keeping God. There is no trouble that God's people endure that God does not know about. God is never surprised about what's happening in your life. But he not only knows your sorrows, he also cares about your sorrows. I mean, imagine this, everyone. The God who sustains the universe lists my tears on his scroll. It's easy to trust someone that you know deeply cares about the details of your life. During our university year, Sarah and I became really close with a couple. That was about a decade older than us, the church that we went to. We'd spend hours eating at their house, playing with their kids, chatting. And so many times, Sarah and I would be driving on our way home, and we'd ask ourselves, why is their, why is their encouragement to us and their love for us and their, and their joy in Christ so infectious? I'll tell you what it was. They paid attention to the details of our life. They cared deeply about the details of our sorrows and our joys and our mistakes. We trust that couple with our lives. We would trust them with our kids because they listened and cared about the details of our life. God listens God records, God cares about the details of your life. But it's one thing for God to take note of our tears, record them. It's another thing for God to wipe our tears away. And David knows that God will execute his justice. God executes justice. Verse 9 Then my enemies, when they see how you care about my tears, my enemies will turn back when I call for help. God records David's suffering because he won't let David's suffering have the final word. Read the Psalms. I mean, you you will just be amazed at how God cares about justice. I said this last time. He cares about justice more than you do, more than I do. Our world is filled with social justice warriors. And that's not a bad thing. That's a, that's a very good thing, in my opinion. But friends, we care about justice often when it suits our interests. We care about justice often when it signals our virtue to the watching world, doesn't it? God executes justice even when the world curses him for it. God's justice operates in two directions that our world just cannot hold together, can it? On the one hand, God's justice lifts up the vulnerable and the broken. It gives them dignity, the oppressed, and honor. 
Certain people in our world love that. And on the other hand, God's justice crushes evil and unrighteousness. Other people like that. David trusts God because he's confident that God will not let evil go unpunished. He's confident that God will not only take note of his tears, but that God will wipe his tears away one day. Lastly, David trusts God because he believes deep down, God is for me. The crescendo of David's song comes at the end of verse 9. By this I know that God is for me. Verse 11. In God I trust and am not afraid. What can man do to me? This holds David together, this fundamental belief. God is for him. And let me ask you, how does he know? How does he know that God is for him? Is this just wishful, hopeful thinking? He knows because God has anointed him as the king. He is the promised recipient of God's covenant. He is the the person who will be the means of salvation for the whole world. He knows that. Friends, you and I can claim an even better covenant, even better promises to rely on than David did. Christians, those of you who have trusted in Jesus, those of you have, who have repented in your sin, who, have, who are trusting in, in Jesus' death and his righteousness given to you on the cross and his resurrection, you are the recipient of a better covenant than David. You can rely on better promises than David. Listen to what Jesus says. This, that, that future awaited king, Jesus, says to his followers in the book of John. He says this. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, that means whoever embraces me. That person has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Listen to Jesus four verses later. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. See the resonance with our passage? Your ancestors ate manna and they died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Israel was delivered and saved by bread, heavenly bread. They died. David was delivered and saved by heavenly bread. He died. But friends, feast on Jesus. Embrace Jesus. And your soul will never die. If David knew that God was for him, we can say with much greater confidence that God is for us. And that's precisely what the Apostle Paul argues at the end of Romans chapter 8. Let's turn there. It's on page 1135. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, page 1135. Okay, so Paul, at the end of this chapter, 
He wants Christians to know that God is committed to work, to working for your ultimate good. Certainly, you will experience as a Christian terrible experiences, okay? But, but what he is saying is that those experiences will not culminate in your shame and in your rejection, but in your vindication and in your exaltation. And then he starts in this magnificent section in chapter 8, verses 31 and following. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This doesn't mean that if God is for us, we won't receive opposition. He's writing to people who are being persecuted and opposed on every side. You're going to meet opposition every day. Brothers and sisters here in this congregation, you will face terrible experiences. We have experienced terrible experiences this year already. There are chronic illnesses. There have been premature deaths of loved ones. There has been loss of job. There has been rejection of spouses. There has been scorn of children, unfulfilled dreams, false accusations. And if it hasn't happened, it will happen. No, it's not that you won't meet opposition if God is for you. It's that no one and nothing can successfully oppose you if God is for you. But Luke, how do I know? How do I know that God is for me? I mean, I'm not this messianic king of Israel. I'm just a person in the pew. Where's the proof? What, what can I see and sink my teeth into and grab onto to know God is for me? That's a good question. Because some people wake up and feel that God is for them if the sun is shining. That's usually bad news if you live in England. Not today. Some people feel that God is for them if the despair and depression has lifted. Some people put God to the test. God, if you're for me, then, you, then you'll get my child through, this, through the cancer treatment. God, if you're for me, you'll give me a partner or the, the spouse I've been wanting. God, if you're for me, you'll get me that job. Christian, God has already definitively proven that he is for you. Verse 32. This is where. He who did not spare his own son, he who did not spare his own, his most precious possession, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Don't quickly pass over that phrase, he who did not spare his own son. 
In the West, we're, we're fairly removed from the terrors of war, at least my generation is. But about a generation ago, and many of you can attest to this, you'd often hear a passing comment about an older mom. Oh, yes, her son died in the war. It's a quick, empathetic phrase, but it can hardly sum up the sacrifice of a lifetime. What do I mean by that? When that mother discovered she was pregnant, many years before that, she bonded with that baby first through morning sickness and nausea, and then that bond grew deeper as the baby, that baby boy constantly kicked her ribs and kept her up at all hours of the night. Then came the labor pains and the agonizing screams as she, del- she, as she delivered her most prized possession. She nursed this baby boy, right? Sacrificed thousands of hours of sleep so that he'd be fed and so that he'd be comforted. She changed thousands of nappies, and in those days, I believe, she washed thousands of nappies as well. She cared for that little boy when he had fevers, and she caught those fevers as well. She taught him the alphabet, read him hundreds of books, cleaned up bloody knees, wiped tears away. She eventually explained the great mystery of girls to him. She watched him grow tall and she watched him grow strong. She learned the rules of his favorite sport and she cheered him on at thousands of games that she didn't, wouldn't else otherwise have cared about. Eventually, she learned how to make the favorite meal of his favorite girl. Then she learned that there was evil and corrupt men in the world who were taking the liberties and freedoms away from others and even killing many others. So she cried and she kissed her son and she sent him off to war. And that would be her last kiss. Oh yes, her son died in the war. Would you, would you or anyone doubt that mother's commitment to freedom and to rescuing the lives of others? She gave the sacrifice of a lifetime so that some people would have freedom and so that others would be rescued their very lives. Christian, in the moments of your desperation and your fear, Anchor yourself right here. God is for me. And the proof is that he sacrificed his own son, a sacrifice much greater than a lifetime, to demonstrate that he is committed to your final good. (laughs) 